You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. The book of John, chapter 19, that's where we're going to be uh, today. And like Jordan said at the beginning, welcome back if you were on spring break uh, this week. Whether that was just being off school or uh, traveling, we're grateful that you're back with us. We have been going through for uh, months now, many months, the Gospel of John, and we're getting closer and closer to the end. We were trying to sync up as best as we could the Easter Sunday that's coming up two Sundays from now with the resurrection accounts of Jesus, and so we're getting close to that. Today we're going to be uh, speaking about uh, what happened to Jesus' Jesus's body at the cross after he died and how he was buried. And I was trying to think of some sort of just easy way into the subject, some lighthearted funny story or something, but I, I'm not going to. Uh, the last Sunday and this Sunday, uh, there are weighty topics that we're talking about, the death of Jesus. Today, we're going to be talking about the burial of Jesus. It's not any sort of laughing matter or light matter, um, but we're going to be speaking about the burial of Jesus today from John 19. We're going to start in a few minutes uh, from verse uh, 31, and we're going to go to the end of that chapter. And then next Sunday, we're going to see the resurrection, uh, the good news that we've all been waiting for, that we've known is coming in John, but uh, that, that we can look forward to next Sunday. Uh, but we want to not bypass the burial of Jesus. I think sometimes we unintentionally do that. I, I, for one, do that, that we so much emphasize, and this is good, emphasize the death of Christ, like we talked about last Sunday, we emphasize the resurrection of Christ, uh, like we're going to the next few Sundays and every Sunday. Um, but often we forget to, to stress that he was actually buried. But this, when you read early Christian, even scripture itself, or early writings of the church, the burial of Jesus was important to them. It wasn't just a throwaway event that you could kind of just bypass and go straight from the cross to the resurrection, straight from the cross to the empty tomb. Uh, the burial of Jesus was very important. Take, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This was a letter written by the Apostle Paul really early on in the history of the church. And, and that towards the end of that letter, he took some time to take a few sentences to summarize the Christian message, the Christian gospel, the good news that he was giving to this church that had been given to him. And the way he summarized it was this. He said, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also had received. So he's not just making this up. He's telling them what he received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. And so right there, even in the it's scripture itself, when Paul is summarizing the good news of Christianity, he is saying that part of it is that Jesus was buried. Not just that he died and was raised, but he died, was buried and was raised. And then a little bit later on in the history of the church, this is not inspired by the Holy Spirit, but there was a statement that developed that we've come to call the Apostles' Creed. Some of you learned that when you were a little kid, uh, and you could maybe recite it. We're not going to recite the whole thing, but I wanted to show you part of it. It was this short summary, this creed that, that Christians should agree upon based on Scripture. And even within that, they wrote this, speaking of Jesus. They said, "...who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary..." suffered under Pontius Pilate, and then they said this, was crucified, dead, and was buried. That got embedded into the history of the church and has been recited by many churches for a few thousand years now, this idea that Christ did not just be crucified and die, but that he was buried. And that's what we're going to read about today, is what happened after Jesus died, but before he was raised from the dead. And I, I trust that God has much to say to us through his word about this, that it's not just a throwaway event, but even as we read about the burial of Jesus, that it has significance for us. It has import for us and for our lives as people almost 2,000 years later. And so what we're going to read today, John nineteen thirty-one to 42, uh, is at the culmination of many things that have taken place. If you've been here, we've gone through all these things, but just a quick recap. Jesus entered our world. God the Son entered our world. We read about that back in John chapter 1. And then uh, these chapters that have ensued since then, John, the disciple of Jesus, recorded for us the things that Jesus taught, the things that he did, the miracles that he performed, the signs that he gave that were all pointing ahead to his ultimately to his death his burial and resurrection. And we've seen in the most recent chapters that Jesus had come to Jerusalem at the week of Passover 
to their capital city. He had spent hours with his disciples that night before he was going to be crucified. But then as Thursday turned into Friday, Jesus was arrested. He was betrayed by one of his friends for money. He was arrested, put on trial, a joke of a trial, but was convicted in this kangaroo court was nailed to a cross as we saw two Sundays ago and then last Sunday we saw where we just ended was Jesus said it is finished like my work of saving the wrath that God has poured on to me it is finished my life is now finished and that's where we ended last Sunday was Jesus hanging on the cross dead but now we're going to read I'm going to read this whole text and we'll walk back through it and we'll see what the Lord would have to say to us today so follow along with me we'll start in verse 31 and read all the way to the end of the chapter. John recorded this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies might not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Then John, I think speaking of himself, said this. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, but about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is the word of God. There's much, I think, that we can see from this text. How we're going to try to walk through this text is to, in three ways. First, I want us to walk back through and think in terms of this almost like a play or a script that we're watching play out. This was real. These things actually took place. There are witnesses to these. But think in terms of a play or an act that's going on. First, I want us to see just what the actors within it were doing and why they were doing it. Why was, uh, why was Pilate being asked this? Why did Joseph and Nicodemus do this and bury this in this way? So I want us to see what the actors within the story were doing. But then I want us to back up and think about the author of the story, God himself, and see what he was doing, what he was trying to bring about, what he was ensuring took place as these men and even these women that were involved in the burial do their thing. So we'll see the actors of the story and what they did, the author of the story and what he was doing. But then I want us to end by seeing our place in this story. I never, I never want us to read the Bible as if we're some detached people who just read it like it's some ancient document. But we're characters within the story as well. And I want us to see what God may have to say to us about our own lives, our own deaths, our own burials, our own resurrection as well. And so I, I want to walk through this by... Uh, First, talking about the actors within this story. And I think we're going to see very clearly that they were, we may say it this way, preparing for the Sabbath day. That's what they were doing. John mentions this a few times, this idea of preparation. Uh, So they were preparing for the Sabbath day. That's first and foremost at a ground level what's going on in this story. They're getting ready for the Sabbath day. Did you notice when I was reading at the very beginning of the text in verse 31, and then at the very end of it, verse 42, twice here, John references this day, Friday, that Jesus was crucified, and he calls it the day of preparation. Or in verse 42, he called it the Jewish day of preparation. Twice, in just a span of a couple uh, paragraphs, he, he notes that this was the day of preparation. 
If you look back even in verse 14 earlier in the chapter, he had said it there as well. He had called it the day of preparation. It's not as if he thinks we're going to forget this, but he wants to emphasize it. He keeps calling it the day of preparation, the day of preparation, the Jewish day of preparation. And that is a foreign concept to us. We don't have a day of the week we call the day of preparation, but they did. In Jesus' day, they had this day, the Jewish people did, had this day once a week that they would call the day of preparation. Uh, What that was, was that it was the sixth day of the week. If you remember, if you've read through at all the Old Testament, you know that God commanded them to work for six days, Sunday to Friday, and then to rest on the seventh day, the seventh day of the week, Saturday. And so they had developed this pattern in life as Jewish people that they would work and do all their responsibilities Sunday to Friday. And then as sundown, that's when their day would start. As sundown happened on Friday, their Sabbath would start, this day of rest that would come once a week, once a week, once a week. It would keep coming. And so that day, Saturday, that was supposed to be a day of rest and a day where they did not work, but, but a day instead where they worshipped and where they, they spent time in appreciation of God and, and detached from work. What that meant is that on Friday, on that sixth day of the week, they would prepare for the seventh day. And so they called this day that would come once a week, the sixth day they called the day of preparation, where they would be doing the things that were necessary in their homes, in their workplaces, wherever they might be out and about in society to be ready for that day of rest. So that's why they call it the day of preparation on Friday. But this was a special day, even amongst Fridays. Every Friday would have been called the day of preparation for them. But this was a high day, John noted in verse 31. He said that that Sabbath that was about to happen, that Saturday, was a high day because of its uh, closeness to the Passover. All these people in Jerusalem, and of all the Fridays that they were preparing in the year, this would have been probably the most special one, the most significant one, where they had the most to do to get ready for that day of rest, that day of worship that would come on Saturday. And so there was this special day even on which Jesus happened, so to speak, and it wasn't just happened, but where he was crucified was that day of preparation, that high day where they were getting ready for that Saturday, for that Sabbath. And so as an aside, I think this is a wonderful practice for us. We're not under the law. We're not uh, under the Old Testament any longer. But I think it would behoove us as individuals or as families to have a practice similar to this. Where when we're getting ready to worship on Sunday, that we think of our day of worship, the Lord's Day, beginning on Saturday night. Uh, that, that we rest, that, we get, that we're attentive as we come into these seats, that we're, we come anticipating what God might want to do with us while we gather together. But that's beside the point. With these characters in this story, we see that they're preparing for this Sabbath day. That's what they're doing. That's what's motivating a lot of what happens even in this text. And I want to show you a few ways that I think that that preparing for the day of rest impacted what took place even with Jesus' body here. What typically would have taken place after someone was crucified was this. We don't crucify people anymore. I don't expect any of us to have our our bearings on what normally would have happened after crucifixion. But what did happen is different. And so what normally would happen is that these men who would be crucified, these criminals who would be hanging upon this cross, they would be allowed to die slowly and painfully. They were not trying to make these deaths fast. They were trying to make them slow. And they were trying to make it a spectacle for people to see. They were trying to make this suffering very evident to the people who would walk by. These thousands of people who would be coming into Jerusalem at this time. They normally would have wanted it to be very visible. They would have wanted these men to slowly die. And then they still did, interestingly enough, they still did, especially the Jews in this day, still have a high regard for the burial of human bodies. And so even these men who would be crucified would still be given over to people to be buried after they had died. After that death had finally come, their bodies would normally be given over to family members. They'd they'd be given to them to bury uh, in their family's grave however they would want to. But those that were executed for the things Jesus was executed for, that was not normally what would happen. Like those bodies, when they died, they would not take them down and give them to their family. They would typically let them stay there, and as gross as it sounds, they would let them rot. 
They would let animals come. They would let birds come. They would leave the bodies there for these people who had been enemies of the state, who had been enemies of the government. They would want to make a spectacle to them and leave them on the cross even after they died. Eventually, they would give them to the Jews, who, the Jewish leaders who would bury them in some common grave outside of Jerusalem. But they would usually leave their bodies there, the people who were executed for what Jesus was accused of. And so that's what normally would take place. But what you see happen in this story is that they're trying to speed this up. The Jewish leaders are trying to speed up this process because this Sabbath day, this high day, is looming for them that very next day. And they're trying to speed it up. And so we see here that this preparation leads to them asking Pilate that the legs of these men would be broken. If you can imagine, if these deaths were typically slow, they typically would last hours, if not days, like in, in order for this person to die. They did not want to wait days. They wanted the, these people to be dead. They wanted them to be off these crosses. And so they had this practice if they needed to speed up the deaths for whatever reason of these people on the cross. As awful as it sounds, these people that would have been in such agony, the way that they would speed this up is that they would take this huge piece of metal, I believe it was, and they would crush their legs. And they would, they would break their legs, so then all the pain they were already feeling, now they couldn't even press up to breathe. And if they tried to, it would just be agonizing pain, and it would speed up very understandably their death. And that's what they ask for in verse 31. The Jewish leaders wanting to be ready for the Sabbath day and to have these bodies off the crosses, they say, Pilate, can you break these guys' legs? We need to get them dead. We need to get them off of these crosses. And that's what Pilate agrees to do. It's ironic that these Jewish leaders are wanting to follow the law now when they've just crucified the Son of God, but they are. They're trying to get these cursed people, they think, off the cross. They're trying to get these bodies clear. And the soldiers follow the orders from Pilate, and they go and they break the legs. Verse 32, they break the legs of the other two men that have been crucified next to Jesus, the ones that had still been alive. They're trying to speed up their deaths. But when they come to Jesus, they see that he's already dead. His death apparently had happened quickly, which is understandable when you have the wrath of God coming down on you. This wasn't just a normal process of death. It was weightier and fuller, infinitely harder than those other two men next to him. But he had died quickly, and so they don't need to break his legs. And so this prophecy from Psalm 34:20, where the psalmist had written, He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. This prophecy is fulfilled because of the quickness of Jesus' death. Even though they wanted to break his legs, he was already dead. It needed not happen. And so that the day of preparation led these people to want to break the legs of Jesus, but it didn't need to happen. But the, the, the day of preparation also led these people to the place that Jesus actually ended up being buried. I don't know if you noticed this in the, the text, but uh, they needed to bury him nearby. They, they didn't have the luxury of, even though the body was dead, it was taken down, uh, and we'll come back to the spear in just a moment, but even though it had already been taken down and handed over, they didn't have ability to just take it to some faraway grave back in Bethlehem or wherever else they would have wanted to. They needed to bury him nearby because this day of preparation Zooming. And so as Joseph of Arimathea in verse 38, this influential man in Jerusalem amongst the Jews, as he asks for the body of Jesus and is granted it by Pilate, which is beyond me why he would allow that to happen. Uh, God is providentially moving there. But he lets Joseph take this body of Jesus and sundown is getting closer. Jesus would have died in the afternoon and sundown when their Sabbath would have started is looming. And they need to get his body taken care of and buried before this day of rest begins. And so it's recorded for us that there is a garden, verse 41. John records that there was a garden, uh, uh, there was a new tomb there in which no one had been laid. And then he says, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. And so they needed to bury him fairly quickly, and so they do. Joseph of Arimathea, this powerful, influential man, we know from the other Gospels, had this tomb that was even prepared for himself, that no one had yet been laid in, but it's nearby. And he, they put his body in that tomb. They lay him in that tomb. And so this day of preparation led to these things. The, these characters are doing what they did because they're preparing for the Sabbath day. They're trying to get all this stuff wrapped up, taken care of before sundown on Friday. But what we see as we 
peel back some of the layers, and I think John would want us to do this, peel back some of the layers behind them and, and beyond them, what was happening at deeper levels, is that not just that these characters were preparing for the Sabbath day, for that Saturday, but we see that God the Father was preparing for Sunday. God the Father, while they were worried about the details of getting his body buried and where it would be and making sure he was actually dead and off the cross, all these characters are worried about all these things to do with Saturday. Let's get it done before sundown. God the Father is orchestrating things to make sure that the stage is set for Sunday morning. That, that when Jesus would be raised from the dead, that we know it's true. That it's verifiable, that it's powerful, that it's clear, that there's no question that this man who was dead is raised now from the dead. And so as, as corny and hokey as this may sound, as these men were getting ready for sun down on Friday, God the Father was getting ready for his son to rise on Sunday morning, wasn't he? And you see that in this story. And I want to show you a few ways that God's at work through these characters. He's at work through the decisions they're making, sometimes unbeknownst to them, to set the stage for Sunday, for the resurrection of his son. The first thing, if we're, we're thinking of how God the Father, the author of this story, was preparing for Sunday for the resurrection of Jesus, I think the first thing we see in this text, and I want us to note, is that God the Father was working to make sure that Jesus' death was actually confirmed. That, that we knew, as people who read this 2,000 years later, that Jesus actually died. That's important. Uh, that if we're going to believe that he was raised from the dead, we need to be, believe and know he actually was among the dead, that he actually did die. And I think that's what's going on here when, we're, when he, we hear John recording what happened with that spear. After they had checked Jesus' leg, that they placed this spear in the side of Jesus. I, I was thinking about this in particular because I was recently talking to a man that, that I respect, that I love within our community, but that's not a believer in Jesus. And I, I was talking to him recently, and he was trying to, to ar- not argue in an argumentative sake, but make the case that when you read the Bible, that the authors of the New Testament, like Paul and Peter and these other people, that they don't really care so much about what he called the historical Jesus. Like that, that Jesus actually died, that he actually was raised from the dead. He was trying to say, man, that doesn't really matter. That doesn't loom large in their theology and in what they're trying to communicate. I, I, I pointed out to him a few places, it most certainly does. Like if, if there's no historical death of Jesus, then there's no historical resurrection of Jesus. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if there's no resurrection of that dead body, then our faith is a joke. Like, we should be pitied. It is of utmost importance that we know Jesus died, and that we know that Jesus was raised from the dead. And so God the Father is working through these details of what happened here with Jesus' body to confirm that Jesus actually died. One way he does that is that Jesus died publicly. Jesus didn't just die some old man in in his house uh, with no one around. Jesus died publicly. He died visibly for hundreds if not thousands of people to witness and to see. He died publicly. This was not some private thing. But we see here, and I'm grateful that John recorded this for us, we see visible evidence, things that he saw with his own two eyes, things that took place that confirmed that Jesus had actually died. There was a spear, he records for us, that was thrust in the side of Jesus in verse 34. And if you think about what's going on here, this would make sense that they're wanting to confirm that Jesus actually died. They want him to know he's dead. That's what the point of the cross is, is to ensure that this man dies. But he had died quickly. Do you remember that? Like, so they may have been thinking, man, how did this guy die so fast? Like, how, that doesn't normally these take hours and hours and hours. These other two men, they're not dead yet. Why is he dead? Like, is he really dead? And they had this way to confirm it, where they would run this spear through the side of the person to see, like, did they respond? Did their body respond? And if so, how? And what you see take place when the spear is placed in the side of Jesus is what you would expect if the person is dead. 
that I don't know all the biology of it. I'm not even going to try to explain. I think sometimes people try to read too much into this in verse 34 where they talk about the blood and the water coming out of the side of Jesus and what that really meant about what was going on around his heart and lungs. I don't know that. So I, am not, I didn't go to school to be a medical doctor. But that, I don't think that's why. Uh, I don't think John was trying to get into the intricacies of the human body and anatomy. I think he was trying to tell us very clearly, I saw them run a spear in the side of him and he didn't flinch and blood and water came out. He was dead. Like these men who were pros at executing people, they saw that he was dead enough to where they went and told Pilate, he is dead as dead can be. And John says, I saw it. Like I, I saw that sphere going inside. I saw blood and water come out of his side. And if you're familiar with the other narratives that the other gospel writers record for us, it's not impossible that someone could have theoretically passed out and then been resuscitated, right? If you read the end of Matthew, what happens, according to Matthew, on Sunday morning is that these angels come and there's this earthquake and the guards, we'll talk about them in a minute, that had been placed there at the tomb of Jesus, they fall down and tremble as though dead. But later you see them alive and talking again. You see, and so this could have happened. People, I don't think, it did not happen, but people could have thought, man, maybe Jesus just passed out. Maybe his body went into shock. Maybe he just, I mean, his body was so dehydrated that it just went into some sort of shock. That is not what took place because we needed a resurrected Savior, not a resuscitated Savior, right? Like we needed someone who passed through death, not just who went unconscious. Like someone who died for our sins, who took the penalty of death. And that is what John saw take place. And that's what he's telling us. I saw it happen. He was dead as dead can be. And so if Jesus is alive a few days later around Jerusalem, guess what happened? He was raised from the dead. But he died, and if he's alive again, that means resurrection took place. And God is wanting us to know that, that he actually died, and that is proof to us that he actually was raised. And so God the Father is working first to prove that, to confirm his death. But I think even in the nature of how Jesus was buried, God the Father is at work preparing, setting the stage for Sunday morning. He's he's getting ready for Sunday morning. A few things I want to point out to you. Uh, of how Jesus was buried from this text. One is that Jesus was buried with dignity. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but there's a quick turn here where Jesus has been treated with such disrespect and disdain and his body abused and mistreated and mocked and crowns of thorns and whipped and nails through his hands. And then there's this quick turn after he dies I don't know if you've thought about this before, but where now, because of how things happen with Pilate and him allowing Joseph of Arimathea to take his body, Jesus' body is no more treated like a criminal. It's no more treated like some person who's trying to cause some rebellion and insurrection. His body is treated now as it comes to be buried. His body is treated with respect. That should tip us off as an indicator that, man, God the Father had been punishing Jesus He had been treating him like a criminal and worse. He had been placing our sins upon him and crushing him for it. But now as we saw last Sunday, that is finished. Like every ounce of it has been drank by Jesus. Every bit of it, every bit of punishment has been laid on him. And now God the Father is wanting us to see it is done and I'm going to have my son be treated with respect. Like I'm going to have his body be handled with the dignity that it deserves. John Calvin wrote this, speaking of this event. He said, when Christ had endured extreme ignominy on the cross, that just means like public shame, God determined that his burial should be honorable, that it might serve as a preparation for the glory of his resurrection. That's a beautiful thing that God is allowing through this turn of events and this permission granted by Pilate, he's allowing the body of Jesus to start to be treated with respect. And it's setting the stage for when it's actually going to be raised from the dead. So he's buried with dignity. I think a, a way that God the Father is using the burial is that Jesus was buried in a timely fashion. He wasn't allowed to just rot on the cross. He wasn't allowed to have animals eat at his body or birds to peck at him. He was not allowed to see this happen. This is significant because do you remember Jesus has predicted not just that he would be raised, 
But he predicted how soon he would be raised as well, didn't he? He had said, tear this temple down, and in three days I'll raise it back up. He had said, I'll be raised on the third day. If, if things would have been allowed to unfold like normal, Jesus' body probably would have been on the cross for a few days at least. It would have not have been laid in the tomb. It would have not have been able to be raised in the fashion that God wanted it to be. It, it would have started to decompose and be awful, even beyond what it was before he died. But he allows the body to be taken down and buried in a timely fashion so that the predictions of Jesus himself could be fulfilled, that he would be raised from the grave on the third day. You see here that, that his burial was done privately, and he was, so he was buried privately, and he was buried alone. Those are significant things that John noted here. Remember I said that most people who would be crucified would be put into some sort of, either given to their family or in Jesus' case, they normally would have been put in some public grave, some common grave for criminals that the Jews would have had in that day. But Jesus is buried in a private tomb. He's not buried among other dead bodies. He's not put in some uh, tomb where other dead people have been laid, where there may be bodies that are decomposing or bones that have been uh, preserved. He is laid into a private tomb, and he is laid there alone. John notes for us uh, that this was a, a tomb that had never been used before. Uh, verse 41. That's important. Like God is, is steering things even through the, the use of Joseph of Arimathea's tomb to see that Jesus is buried by himself. And so that when he is raised on Sunday, that tomb is either empty or it's full. Like there's either the body there or it's gone, one or the other. Like if he would have been buried in some common grave or a tomb where there had been many bodies, you could see how people who were trying to deny the resurrection could have pointed to all the other bodies in there. This would have been before DNA and whatnot. They could have pointed to other bodies that were there and said, see, like this is his body. He was buried here. He's still here. But he was buried by himself so that when he was raised from the dead, it could be increasingly evident he is alive. Like this tomb is empty. It was empty before he was laid here. It's empty again. He is alive. John, I want to point out this as well. John is probably the last gospel writer. He's adding things to the true story that the other gospel writers uh, have not mentioned. He's, he's completing the story for us. But one of the things that's important about how Jesus was buried is recorded for us in Matthew's account of Jesus' burial. If you read Matthew chapter 27, we see that when Jesus was buried, that his tomb was guarded. Like what happened on the Sabbath day, which they should not have been working and scheming like this on the Sabbath day. Uh, but Jewish leaders, according to Matthew 27, who were fearful that the disciples, their worst case in their mind was, man, the disciples are going to come and steal Jesus' body from that tomb, Pilate, and they're going to make up some story that he's alive. Let's guard it. Let's seal it so we can prove to people that he's not alive. And when they start saying this nonsense, we can open up this tomb and show them his dead body in here. And so Pilate allowed them to set guards at the tomb of Jesus. And the stone that was placed in front of the opening of the tomb, they sealed to prove to people, they thought, that this tomb had never been opened, that Jesus' body was still there, that it was still dead as dead can be, and they didn't want people to make up foolishness. But God is working using even the paranoia of these Jewish leaders, that their fear of the resurrection, and their, their sealing of this stone, and their setting of this guard here. God is using that, ironically and powerfully, to make the credibility of Jesus' resurrection even more clear. Like, because there have been guards there, and it had been sealed, it wasn't just open for people to do whatever they want. God is working through these details of how Jesus was buried and how it was guarded uh, to make the validity of the resurrection of Jesus more and more and more true for us. I want to point out another thing from this text. This has been fascinating to look at this week of, of what God is doing here because I think God was most certainly wanting to, he was preparing things for Sunday for us to be convinced and know, even as people who live long after, that the resurrection was true. I think he was working to, to make sure that there were facts there and things that we could know and point to to know that it was true, that this man really did die for me and he's been raised from the dead. But he was doing more than that. He was also wanting to make the story beautiful as well. He, he didn't want us to just think that it's true. And I want to point out to you, did you notice where Jesus was buried? Verse 41. 
says, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. That is not an accident. And John mentions twice here, and he'll mention again in chapter 20, this idea of a garden. And Jesus being buried in a garden, he does it on purpose because if you rewind all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, where was the first human being created and placed? In a garden. Like that's where the first human being was placed after he was created. And when Jesus came back to life on Sunday, guess where he was? In a garden. Like this, this first, this second Adam, this new creation that God was going to make that would never die again. He came to life in a garden. And, and, and God is doing this, even in where Jesus was buried, to show this story is not just true, but it's beautiful. Like, he's been crafting it from the beginning of time, since before he made Adam. He's been bending all of it towards this, towards the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So he wanted this story to be beautiful to us, but he also wanted it to be powerful to us. He didn't just want it to be true and beautiful in some appealing, artistic way. Like, wow, what a story. But he wanted us to know the power. And I, I would point out the last thing about his burial is note who he was buried by. He was buried by Joseph of Arimathea and by Nicodemus. These men were powerful Jewish leaders around Jerusalem. And Nicodemus, even a teacher of the Jews around Jerusalem. And they are the ones that buried Jesus. But John notes some things about them, doesn't he? He says that Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Jesus, but that he had been secretly a disciple of Jesus because he was afraid of the Jewish leaders. But when, when Jesus' body is dead, Joseph of Arimathea boldly comes to Pilate and says, give me his body like he is not a criminal. I will take care of his body. I will see that it's laid to rest. And you see the power of God breaking through in this man as Jesus died for him. Now his heart is starting to be changed. And Nicodemus the same. Nicodemus, he says, he, he says Nicodemus also, and he could have just kept going and said, uh, brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes. But he mentions for us, reminds us, that Nicodemus, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came with these aloes and these spices. He's pointing us back to what he recorded for us in John 3, where it seems like Nicodemus had been intrigued by Jesus, but even when he came to talk to him, he did it at night. He did it under the cover of darkness, probably so he wouldn't be seen by people. But now, in public, known by all his Jewish leader friends, Nicodemus is joining up with Joseph Arimathea and saying, I will help you bury him. And you see that this story is not just true of the resurrection. It's not just beautiful, but it is powerful. Like there were powerful things happening in Jerusalem and even now around the world because of this man, Jesus, who died for us and was about to be raised for us. The other gospel writers record powerful stuff happening, like graves being opened when Jesus died. And the temple curtain that separated the holy place being torn in two from top to bottom. That there's powerful things that are, are mentioned as happening around the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But this is no less powerful. Like that these men were actually changed. That their hearts that have been such cowards and fearful and just keeping to themselves are now don't care anymore. They say, I, I want to take care of this man. I believe he died for me. I believe, I don't know what they knew about the resurrection, but they certainly had hope he would still able to do something for them. And they, they identify now with Jesus. I want that to be an encouragement to those of us who are sharing our faith with people who are slow to respond. People who sometimes take years for the, the seeds that we're sowing in their life, the things that we are telling them about Jesus, and they don't believe, and they don't believe, and maybe you get some little glimpse of it, but then they back off of it. Have confidence that because of the death of Jesus and the soon resurrection of Jesus, that he can change hearts. Like, years are no obstacle to him. It is just as easy for him to convert someone today or tomorrow as it was when you started talking to them 30 years ago as a child or when you started talking to them last year as a co-worker. Like he, time is no obstacle to him, and the amount of times that the gospel is shared, it's not as if there reaches some tipping point. We just got to tell people 50 times, and now they believe. They believe when the Spirit gives life to them. And, and there is power in the death and the resurrection of Jesus that we start to see on display here in Joseph and Nicodemus that God still does today, that he still puts on display, that he's put on display in you if you're a believer, and that he can put on display in those that you're sharing the gospel with. And so God the Father was preparing for Sunday. He was preparing for the resurrection as these characters were preparing 
for the Sabbath. But I want to spend the last bit of our time today thinking about you, thinking about me, thinking about us and how this story comes to bear on us. Because we are not, like I said earlier, we're not detached people from this story who just read it as like, oh, that's a beautiful story. That is a powerful story. Like we are characters within this story. We are part of the story. Christ came to save us. He died for us. He was buried and for us. He was raised for us. And it's important for us to think how God might be preparing us through this text. This theme of preparation. They were preparing for the Sabbath. God was preparing for that Sunday. I think God is preparing us as well. And he's not just preparing us for some day of the week. He is preparing us for what I would call the final day. He's preparing us. I I appreciate Pastor Larry regularly says that he's preparing us for that day. That day when I will be judged. A day when you will be judged by the one that made you. There is a day coming that we need to be prepared for. A day coming where each of us will be judged. The book of Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 says this. It is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. That will happen for you. That will happen for me. Where God, the one that made us, that gave us life, will judge us. More specifically, Jesus, the one he sent into this world, he will judge us. And God wants us, commands us to be ready for that day, to be prepared for that day when it comes. And a few things that I I would say by way of application of how we can be being prepared for that day, that, that last day, that final day, would be these. First, I would call to those of you in the room who do not yet trust in Christ, who have not placed your faith in Him, who have not turned away from your sin. I would use the language that John used here in verse 35. I would call on you very simply today to believe. Like John says, I'm writing this. The reason I'm taking great pains to record this and what I saw of how he actually died. And I can't, we'll read about how he comes to the tomb on Sunday morning and then he talks to the resurrected Jesus. He's saying, I'm writing this to you. And the reason I'm even taking time to preach this to you today is so you believe it. It's not just to think it's some interesting story. Oh, that's awesome. Happy Easter. It's to to believe he died for your sins. To believe that he was raised from the dead and that if you will turn to him in faith and repentance, if you will very simply, as John says, believe that what he did is true and that it's powerful and can be effective for you, he says, I will forgive you. I will give life to you eternal. This life that's eternal life God gave me that Sunday morning, I'll share it with you. He will give that to you if you will simply believe upon him, if you will put your trust in him. The most famous verse in this whole book of the Bible is John 3.16 where John recorded this, that God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him, that includes you, if this becomes true of you, whoever believes in him shall not perish but will have everlasting life. That can be granted to you today. It can be granted to you now if you will believe upon Christ, put your trust in him. And I call upon you today to do that. Let today be a day of preparation, so to speak, for your soul. Where you can leave this room today knowing I am ready for that day of judgment. Whether it comes today, comes tomorrow, whether it comes 50 years from now, I am ready because I have believed upon Christ. And he's died for me and been raised for me. These people, these characters in the story, they knew when sundown was that Friday night. And they were getting ready for it. They knew the time it would be. They knew it probably precisely. And it would be, I can tell you when, because of Google, when the sun will go down today. It'll go down at 8.15 p.m. tonight. And when I'm like, that's when the sun goes down today. But you do not know when the sun will set on your life. You don't. Like, and it is prepared for you after you die to face judgment. That may be today. It may be decades from now, but it may be today. And I wish I could convey with more urgency than I can in my voice. You need to believe upon Christ now. Like, believe upon him now. Call out to him for forgiveness and eternal life now. And he'll be glad to grant it to you. And your soul will be prepared for that day. So first, I would call you to believe. 
I wanted to share a few words of application for those of us who have already believed. We're continuing to believe. One, is, it's somewhat an aside, but I think it's still important. I at least want to mention it. And this may seem totally random or from right field or left field, whatever the right analogy is, uh, but, but it's not. Is that I would encourage you, if, you have ne- if you're one who's believed in Jesus, but you've never been baptized, I would encourage you to be baptized. Like when you read, and that, that's not random, when you read the New Testament, there's a few different times you read the New Testament where the burial of Jesus is tied to our baptism. That's part of what getting baptized is to symbolize, is our identifying with Jesus in his death and his burial, and then in someday in his resurrection. If you look, for example, at Romans chapter 6, verse 4, Paul wrote this. He said, we were buried, therefore, with him, with him, buried with him by baptism into death. And he continues on there. Uh, but he is identifying baptism as this. It, it's not as if something magical happens, but it is a picture. It's a symbol of us being united with Jesus. The, the, the fact that I have been changed, I've been saved by him, I'm now united with him. Getting baptized is a symbol of that, that just as he died, now my old sinful self has died as well. Just as he was buried, my old sinful self is gone, and he's made me into a new person. And so I would encourage you to not just think of baptism as some optional thing, something I could do or not, but if you believe upon Christ, talk to one of us pastors, talk to your parents about what that means to be baptized and express your desire to do it. It's something Jesus commanded us to do if we believe on him and it's directly tied to his burial so believe if you don't believe in him be baptized if you haven't been baptized before but also i would say this to you and, and think of preparing for that final day would be to be holy in your living be holy in your living the, the New Testament also, as you keep reading it, it ties the death of Christ and even the burial of Christ to us. Not just in baptism, but even in how we live life, how we go about our life as people who follow after Christ. If you go, for example, just a few verses past the passage we just read, from Romans 6, verse 6, Paul continued and he wrote this. He said that we know that our old self, that sinful self, was crucified with him. Cruci- it was put to death in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And so when we look at the death and the burial of Christ, when we are believers in Christ, we should see ourselves in that. We should see that my sin, was, as Paul says in other places, was nailed to the cross. My sin was laid on him. It was placed upon him, and he died for it, and he was put into the grave. Dead, he was laid into the grave, and that was me. Like, that was my old sinful self that would just run after the things I want to run after and would love the things I wanted to love and would just cast off what God tells me to do whenever and however I felt like it. That old me is gone. It's been crucified with Christ, it's been buried with Christ, and now I live for Him. But it's not my prerogative as a Christian to just say, well, I can live for him when I want to, and I can live for myself when I want to. I, the old self, has been crucified and laid in a grave. And God has made you into a new person to follow after him in power and obedience. And so when we look at the burial of Christ, we should see ourselves there, and we should be compelled to say, that old me's gone. I can't keep running back to those things, to those patterns and behaviors and lusts and things that I, I have had in my heart. I need to live as the new creation I am. I need to live with union with the resurrected Jesus, not the one who is dead and in a tomb. And so we, we have been, if we believe in Christ, we have been 100% forgiven of our sins. We have been made completely clean. We have good standing with God. But that does not eliminate the need for us to actually be changed and to be transformed in our life, to be made progressively more and more and more and more like Jesus. That is an important part of our Christian life. So I would call you today, if there is sin that you're harboring in your heart, there's sins you keep running back to, there's things that you keep longing for and going back to, to forsake that, to repent of that and say, I am going to live as the new person I am. I am going to live in obedience to my Savior, Jesus. So be holy. And the last thing I would say is this, is to be, in thinking of preparing for that last day and from this text, is to be hopeful in your suffering and in your grief. 
be hopeful in your suffering and your grief. I thought about this a lot this week, that God let these people, these friends of his, he's let, he let his mom, he let uh, Christ, I should say, let his mom, let his friends, let his disciples, let Joseph, let Nicodemus sit in this sorrow for an entire day and a half. That may not seem like a long time, but he could have been raised. From, God could have erased it where he was just raised from the dead within a couple hours or whatever. He could have timed it however he wanted, but he let them let his body lay in the grave the entire Sabbath day. He let them sit in their grief. He let them sit in their sorrow, and he didn't give them really clear indicators. He had given them hints, and it had been clear, but it hadn't really clicked in their minds yet that he's going to come to life again on Sunday. But he let them sit in their grief and their pain and their loss. But he was still, God the Father was still bending the story towards resurrection. He he was bending the story towards the eternal life he was going to give back to Jesus. But he let them sit in their grief. And he still does that today. Like when, when we see these characters who are grieving, who are burying their friend, we, we should be reminded that sometimes God is going to have us bury our friend. Sometimes God is going to let awful things happen to us. And he's not just going to fix it real quick and tie a bow on it. He's going to let us sit in grief. He's going to let us sit in sorrow. And that does not mean that he's forsaken us. It, it just means he is making us wait. And there are things, there are good things that he can grow in your soul as you sit in suffering. As you sit in sorrow, there are things that he can develop in you. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says this, speaking about things like affliction and being perplexed and persecuted and these awful things that Paul endured. Paul said this, this light momentary affliction is preparing, here's that language again, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul was not minimizing the pain that we go through or that he was going through. And I would never minimize the pain that you're going through. But I am telling you, God does not promise you relief quickly from that. But he does promise you that on the other side of death, he will raise you from the grave. And he promises you forgiveness of your sins. And he promises you eternal life. I can tell you that with absolute confidence. But sometimes he's going to let you sit in suffering. He's going to let you sit in sorrow. But he is still the author of the story. And while you may be dealing with the hardships that you're dealing with in the media, he is bending the story towards Easter Sunday. He's bending the story towards the day when Christ will return and set up his kingdom forever. He is bending your story that way. And we need to hope in him and trust in him that even in the midst of my sorrow, he is bending the story for my good.